If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. This is the gospel of the Lord. It was my first Sunday working at a church in Milwaukee, my first job out of college. My first task was to prep the sanctuary for worship, put out communion, take out the offering plates, bring out the bulletins. No big deal, I thought. So I got all of that done quickly, and then I went about meeting folks on this first Sunday. That is until Ron called me over and said, follow me. He promptly took me to the narthex and informed me that I had put the offering plates in the wrong spot. I had them on a ledge next to some pink envelopes. Ron told me they needed to be five foot over on the same ledge next to the other pink envelopes. <laughs> How else would the ushers know where to get them? <laughs> Apparently, the last intern never got this right he said, and so he wanted to come to me directly so that we could get off on the right foot. Thank you very much, Ron. <laughs> I wonder if Ron had Matthew 18 in mind on that Sunday morning. He did, in fact, come to me directly, not sharing it with the whole congregation like he could have. Did you see Kogan put those plates in the wrong place? It's going to be a rough year. It sounds small, silly even, but so are most church conflicts. That is until they become something bigger. And it doesn't just have to be church. I mean, no church, no family, no organization that you are a part of is immune to conflict. Because all of them are made up of people. And people, as we know, are wonderfully sinful. We mess up. We're impatient, selfish, passive-aggressive. Maybe you've been on the receiving end and have been sinned against. Or you've been the one someone has approached about something you did or something you said or something you didn't do or didn't say. But most likely, 
you've experienced both. Jesus was being generous, saying if instead of when another member of the church sins against you, knowing full well that it's going to happen. And that translation, another member of the church, while it's inclusive, it limits the intimacy of the Greek that says if a brother sins against you. It's not some stranger we're talking about, but a sibling, someone close to you. You know them. This relationship is important, not only to you, but to the whole family. And if this relationship is damaged, it hurts everyone. What follows from Jesus is often seen as the Christian or the church process for dealing with conflict. First, if you are sinned against, go to the person directly discreetly, and point out the fault. Not by email, not by text, certainly not through someone else. This is good practical advice. It lessens triangles, it minimizes damage both to the person and to the whole community. And if in that one-on-one conversation, the sibling who has sinned, if they listen, then the relationship is repaired. And you have gained back that sibling, and everyone rejoices. Yet, if there is still disagreement on the matter, you involve one, two, three others in the next conversation. And I want to be very clear, this is not a way of piling on examples or ganging up on someone. That's not what Jesus is after. The two or three others are there to witness what is said between the two parties. That's how those witnesses function. They confirm what's being said. Yet if still that person does not listen, things get much more serious. And the whole community gets involved. Ultimately making the decision if the person remains in the community or not. It is not taken lightly. If not, they become like a Gentile and a tax collector. Don't miss the irony here. Jesus visits Gentile towns and heals them. He has meals with tax collectors, calls them to be his disciples. The very gospel we're reading was written or attributed to a tax collector. Jesus is always about the business of making outsiders insiders. Which should tell us more about what Jesus is after than just some process. These steps are not a foolproof system to conflict resolution. There is no guarantee that just because each step was followed, that the outcome was a faithful decision in line with God's hope for the community. In fact, there are countless instances where this very process has caused more harm than good. A power-hungry pastor ostracizes an opposing voice by making a private confession public. 
A college ministry follows these steps as a way to weed out less committed members. A favorite spouse is picked in a divorce, forcing the other to leave the church. You can imagine the many ways this process can inflict hurt, doing the opposite of what Jesus intended. Jesus isn't saying, follow these steps to get what you want or to root out all conflict. What's important is maintaining or repairing the relationship in the midst of conflict, if at all possible, for the sake of the community. It's sometimes helpful to remember not all conflict is bad. Conflict can be good, bringing about clarity, further connectedness. And often, not always, but often, conflict shows a level of comfort and trust. You have the most conflict with the people you spend the most time with. I get concerned when I talk with friends in a committed relationship or I I do premarital counseling, and I'll ask a question like, how's communication going? And they'll say, it's great. We never fight. And I'll say, that's great. Neither of you are being honest. I think of a story I heard from a pastor. As a dad, he was absent for much of his daughter's adolescence and teen years. After sobering up, Some 13 years later, he rekindled a relationship with his former spouse and daughter, now 15 years old. For nearly two years, the dad worked hard to rebuild a relationship with his daughter, to be reliable, present, honest with her, not to overstep bounds. He was happy to be a friend, if anything, knowing that it would be a stretch to be a dad. But then one day, as the dad shares the story, his daughter was doing something she wasn't supposed to be doing, and he simply called her out on it. And she let him have it, saying to her dad, you ruined my life. You destroyed everything. I've never had a family. I've never felt loved. I've never felt like I had any worth. You stole everything from me and screamed it at him three inches from his face. And the dad got up and went outside and called a friend. And they weeped. And they weeped tears of joy because they knew that the daughter trusted him enough to yell, to face the conflict, no longer worrying that she'd do or say something to make him leave again. The conflict showed a new level of trust. There is going to be conflict in every community, in every family, in every church, in every organization. In fact, for us at Cross of Grace, I hope there is conflict. And I hope we address it. Because Jesus promises to be there in the midst of it. We've heard this line. You've heard this line from Jesus countless times. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. It's beautiful. 
It's lovely. It's encouraging. It's often used as referring to any gathering of two or three people of faith and a reassuring sense that Jesus is there in any setting. And while that's true, I'm not doubting that. I don't doubt or limit Jesus' presence. Jesus is speaking to something much more specific, namely conflict. When two or three are gathered to sort things out, to argue over something, to confront the hurt one sibling has caused another, Jesus is there where he's needed most. We think it's the opposite, that in times of unity or in places of peace, that's where Jesus really is. That's true. I'm not doubting that either. But here Jesus says that it's in situations we'd least expect. In the midst of conflict and anger, resentment and reproof, shame, hurt, that's where Jesus promises to be. The question for us, Cross of Grace, is what kind of community will we be? How will we do life together? You can be a part, you are a part of all sorts of organizations where if you don't like what someone else says, you leave. You don't have to stick around. Is that going to be the case here? Will we avoid the tough conversations and harbor hurt? Unable to trust the partner and mission sitting right across from you? Or... Do we want something more meaningful and connected? Albeit riskier and harder, this is not easy. Conflict will arise over big things and small, from where the offering plates are placed to conversation around racial justice and what we do and everything in between. Yet the hope is always, 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 reconciliation, and continued fellowship. And that's the point Jesus is making. So address the conflict. Directly, discreetly, humbly. Trusting that in the midst of it all, there is Jesus. Amen.